1847, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis was working as the director of an obstetrics clinic just outside of Budapest. Now, this clinic had a reputation, and not a good one, because the mortality rate for mothers and children in this clinic was 10%, a little high. So high and so observable by everyone that often patients were begging to be sent anywhere else but to this clinic. And Ignaz was a caring and soulful man, and he wanted to find a solution to this problem, figure out what was going on, and spent a lot of time observing his physicians and their interactions with patients and what was going on in the clinic. And one day, while he was observing a fellow physician performing an autopsy, he watched as that physician cut his finger with the scalpel. And soon after, contracted an illness that looked very similar to the childbed fever that was the cause of death for so many in the clinic. And the light bulb went on. And soon Dr. Semmelweis was directing that every physician and staff member in the clinic should be washing their hands in a special chlorinated solution that he had developed. And once he made that change and people adhered to it, lo and behold, the mortality rate of that clinic went from 10% down to 3 Aha, says Dr. Semmelweis, I'm on to something. And so he writes a paper on his observations and what has happened in his clinic due to the changes he has made. And the medical establishment of Europe roundly laughs in his face. My dear sir, we are... We are gentlemen physicians. Are you suggesting somehow that we are unclean? Impossible. Put this away. And so the practice was never widely adopted at the time. I think it's safe to say a fact is just a fact. Tautology, I know. It is a fact regardless of whether we believe in it or not, whether we accept it or not. A fact is a fact. Germs cause diseases. Washing your hands prevents the germs. I think we know that all too well right now. The fact was still the fact in 1847, whether or not Semmelweis's fellow physicians accepted it. It just was and still is. Here is another fact. Things change. Often without us having anything to do with it, things change because the forces of society and nature and what have you. And these changes are not inherently bad things, and these changes aren't inherently good things. These changes, much like facts, just are. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. Here's one major change that is happening here in the United States right now. If we look at the reports of the U.S. Census Bureau, we see that by 2050, 
exactly one generation away from now, the population of the United States will raise by another 100 million people. It will be 400 million people. People from age 16 to 24 will account for 42% of that population. 350 million of the 400 million will be under the age of 65. Meanwhile, the population of the groups that we refer to now as minorities will exceed 50% in this country, especially the Latinx and Asian populations in the United States will triple. 40% of the children under five in 2050 will be Latinx. We can see demographic shifts changing right here in our community in the process too. If you read my newsletter column this month, you'll see the statistic that I received and had reinforced for me again this week talking with some folks from the EAP program at Lanel. 50% of the lab population has lived in this community for less than five years. Perhaps one of the biggest demographic shifts just in this sphere since the Manhattan Project. Now, the census report and predictions are less of a fact that is, but they are a pretty educated guess. And we can see the evidence of what is coming around us if we are paying attention to our friends and our neighbors and what is going on in our country. The fact of it is the demographic picture of the United States is changing. And there's not much we can do about it. But even though a fact is, there is the fact as it stands and there's what we all believe about it or don't believe about it. And the fact that the demographics of the United States are changing has led to a wide range of beliefs about that fact. Not just whether or not it is true, but also how did this come to be? Why is it happening? What does it mean? It almost becomes an existential question for some people, for good or for ill. What is this going to have an impact on the environment with? What will this do to the ways of living that we are so used to? Where do I fit into all of this? Now, I don't like to simplify a very complex and nuanced situation, but I'm going to this morning. I believe that the competing sets of beliefs that have arisen because of this obvious demographic shift in our country is at the heart of the deep divisions that we live with today. Change sometimes is thrust upon us. What will make or break us in these moments, in these colossal shifts, is how we prepare for them our own selves, how we engage the world, how we choose to engage the world as the changes are happening. So how do we engage?
How do we prepare ourselves for change? I think it's, it's important to understand first where our beliefs come from, just in general. How do human beings develop the beliefs that they hold on to? First, we need to look at the evolution of this fascinating human capacity called reason. We are a reasonable people, but where did our reason come from? It was a development over time. Cognitive scientists Mercier and Sperber, in their book Enigma of Reason, have posited that the greatest advantage to humans is their capacity to cooperate with one another for their own survival. Now, this cooperation is difficult to establish and even more difficult to maintain. And so we developed the capacity for reason early in our human history not to solve abstract moral logical problems, but just to resolve the problems that arose from living together in a group. Habits that seem strange to us today, mental habits that seem strange to us today from a logical perspective make a lot more sense when we view our sense of reason from this evolutionary perspective. And we only need to look at how we engage in America's favorite pastime to see the truth in this confirmation bias. Reason was developed to cohere a group together so that we would stick together and work together. And so we tend to stick with our own group and keep it cohesive and think together to keep that unit cohesive. So we cling tightly to the ideas of our group and are more ready to see the flaws in the ideas of another group because we're trying to keep the family together. And while the choices we make as a result may seem ridiculous, logically we are bombarding people with new information and they're just refusing to see it, it's all because of this evolutionary stage of reason. It developed to prevent us from getting screwed by our own group. It developed so we would not lose our standing or our place in the group, so that we would have a social order and cohesion, so we would be able to know who my hunting buddies were going to be, who were going to help me get the food, and who we needed to leave behind at the cave to maybe tend the fire because we knew they were going to get us killed if they came out with us. Reason created the social order. It wasn't developed to let us have clear reasoning and logical reasoning about a topic. It was there to help us win arguments. And in the process, get this lovely dopamine burst when we won them. Prehistoric humans were not worried about moral conundrums. They weren't worried about abstract problems. They didn't have to worry about the problem of disinformation that we face today. They didn't have Twitter to read as we do. Mercier and Sperber say that the environment changed too quickly for natural selection 
who catch up with the problems we face today. And so here we have this lovely human capacity that leads to so much good, but also has some major design flaws within it. The second need we think need to look at is how we know what we know, how we come to believe what we believe. And the answer to that question posits some cognitive scientists is our capacity for social trust. Kaylin O'Connor is a professor of mathematics and the philosophy of science at UC Irvine. Her book, The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, goes into this idea of social trust and just how prevalent it is in teaching us what we believe and letting us know what we know. Most scientists, she said, have been approaching the problem of adapting misinformation and believing wrong things from an individual psychological perspective, but it becomes much more interesting when you look at it from the realm of social psychology and how we function as a group. Most everything we know, she said, we know because somebody else told us. 99% of the things you believe, she says, probably you have no direct evidence of yourself. You have to trust other people to find those things, get the evidence, and tell it to you. And so one thing that we talk a lot about in the book is the fact that we all have to ground our beliefs in social trust. So we have to decide what sources and what people we trust, and therefore what beliefs we're going to take up, because there's just this problem where we cannot go verify everything that we learned directly. We have to trust someone else to do that for us. And so if we look how our reason capacity as it developed is built to create a social cohesion among an in-group and the fact that we need to know who we can trust to tell us what to know and what to believe, here we are. This capacity for social trust itself is not a good thing, and it's not a bad thing necessarily. It just is. It's a channel that's open in our brains. It's a way that we learn, and it allows great things to happen over time. It's how we got to the moon. At its best, that's what happens. At its worst, we cannot see the line that exists between what we know we know for sure and what others have found out for us. The line gets blurred. For example, how many people in this room can today can say with 90% certainty that they know how a toilet works? A few more in this room probably than I would have in another audience, I know. That is one of the questions that was asked of people in a study as they were processing this, this theory of knowledge. They asked respondents in their test group to rate their level of confidence in the knowledge of how basic house household items worked. A screwdriver, a toilet. Most people rated themselves mid to pretty high. Yeah, I know how a toilet works, sure. 
push the thing. And, it... and then in round two, those same participants were asked to describe how the thing worked and then rate their confidence level and how what they knew about what they thought they knew. And all of a sudden, that confidence rating went way down. We don't know what we don't know until we're asked to explain what we think we know. And the human mind works like that. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I know how a toilet works. You do this. Please give me a PhD in fluid mechanics. Thank you. So we combine the limitations of our reason with this need for social trust, we can begin to see where these divisions come today because of the disparate beliefs that grow among separated groups, among our sense of tribalism. The demographics of the United States are changing, so it must be some sort of sinister plot to replace me. The demographics of the United States are changing. It must be karma for how we treated people throughout our colonial years. The demographics are changing. That means I will have no place 30 years from now. The demographics are changing. We have new opportunities ahead of us because of it. The demographics are changing, and the other side believes something completely different. They must be evil. Well, the other side doesn't believe what I believe about these changes, and they must be evil. It's almost as though humans being human, we can't quite help ourselves. I know, it is more complex than that. It is more nuanced than that, but go with me. What does all of this mean for how we prepare for the changes we have no control over? How does it affect how we engage with a world that is changing? First, we need to prepare ourselves. Come to a sense of acceptance about the fact that change happens and change is neither good or bad, it just is. It comes with or without my participation, but how I engage with it will have an effect on my community and on myself. And once we get to that place of acceptance, start paying attention to the stories that we tell about the changes that have happened or that are coming. How do we frame them? Is it all doom and gloom? Or are we coming to beliefs that have some kind of positive call to action about them in the face of these changes? There's a lot of fear in these times. We're feeling it in all circles, every party. Even the stories we tell about the better times to come sometimes are couched in negative terms. This good thing is coming if you do this. If you don't do this, oof, Ragnarok starts tomorrow. Tally Sherrod is a professor at the University College in London. 
She wrote the book, The Influential Mind, What the Brain Reveals About Our Power to Change Others. Fear, she says, is actually not such a good motivation for inducing action. Hope is the better motivator. Fear is great if you want to convince somebody to stay home and do nothing. If we are trying to tackle something big, it is hope and positivity that pushes us forward. She gives us another example of something that happened in a hospital. There was a hospital on the East Coast. A camera was installed to see how often medical staff actually sanitized their hands before and after entering a patient's room. And the medical staff knew that the camera was installed and yet only one in 10 medical staff sanitized their hands before and after entering a patient's room. But then an intervention was introduced, an electronic board that was put above each door and it gave the medical staff in real time positive feedback. It showed them the percentage of medical staff that were washing their hands. The numbers would immediately go up and there would be positive feedback saying, you know, good job, you contributed to that. And that affected the likelihood of people washing their hands significantly. It went up from 10% to 90% and it stayed there. Instead of warning them of the bad things that can happen in the future, which actually results in inaction, they gave them positive feedback. We are, as human beings, susceptible to the emotions of others. We are susceptible to matching them. So we are susceptible to our own intentional ways of feeling about things and others pick up on our moods as we try to talk about change and our ideas and our beliefs and how we are approaching the world. In self and in others, it helps to talk about gains over losses, about benefits over detriments. And now I come back to Dr. Semmelweis. Like I said, his idea did not take hold. And as we can see in this other example in a hospital, there's still some resistance today to doing what we know is good for us. But over time, his idea did supersede others that held sway. The fact remained the fact. The attitudes and the beliefs shifted over time. Now this happens in the scientific realm all the time. Hypotheses are tested, good ideas supersede bad ideas, or at least less good ideas are superseded by better ideas. And it happens at a pace that's a lot more rapid than what we might see in social constructs in our own day-to-day -day living. Kaylin O'Connor again and others argue for what they term, and I love this term, pessimistic meta-induction. In other words, because we know our past theories, our past beliefs have been overturned over time, we should go into our theories and our beliefs, assuming that at some point in history, they are also going to be superseded. Because what we know now is not what we are going to know tomorrow. Believe. 
what you are led to believe, but prepare to be wrong. Or at least prepare to be presented with a better belief at some point during your life. It's difficult because we love our ideas. I love the thoughts that spring from my head. It is mine. It is gorgeous. Everybody take a look at it. This is the greatest thing ever. Oof. Go. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm missing the really good idea that's happening over here because I'm so focused on my own. When our ideas work, when our beliefs are shown to be true, we cling harder and harder to them, and we miss the new thing, the better thing. And this is why we are so resistant to change. Because when we are presented with new ideas and new information, we often frame the story we're telling about it from a sense of loss. But we do better to tell a hopeful story about what is to come. Live with that belief that something good comes from change and trust that an even better story will come along as the changes manifest as we learn more. Change happens. That's not a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It just is. And it's natural for us to resist it but it is also incredibly futile. Question is, what change must I develop within myself and within my in-group in order to stay engaged with a changing world and not sitting back and let it pass us by completely? Find the good in what's to come. Let that be the story that we tell ourselves and others about the inevitable changes in our world. Create a belief that leads to action and not the compunction to stay at home and do nothing. Something that has the possibility to reap some reward for us, even if it's just that sweet, sweet hit of dopamine. Be prepared, even welcoming, to the idea that after all this, even in all our positivity, even in all our hope, we could be wrong, or at the very least, changed for the better. What we know and what we believe now won't be what we know and believe tomorrow. If we can manage to do this in ourselves, practice this shift in attitude and approach, and we start to model it to our own in-groups. We start to demonstrate there's nothing to fear in change. And the more we do it within the in-group and the circle of us, the more we start to model it to others. We start to model, perhaps, something that looks less like an argument with someone who disagrees with us and looks more like an invitation. An invitation to those who are still deriving their beliefs from and living in a sense of fear 
about what is to come. Because the divides seem deep. And the only real bridge that we can build will be a hopeful story that invites someone to have the courage to cross it. May it be so.